I want to, um, I wrote something, I brought my own pen with me, uh, because this is a little light, and I went to use it, and it's all dried up, so <laughs> it was a worthless exercise. No, I'm fine. I think that's right, because I don't really plan to write too much on the board. But um, I want you to think with me about um, our reputation as Christian men. The Apostle Paul is writing to this group of believers at Thessalonica, and the last two weeks we spent a lot of time on the geography, and so as we talk about these things, that should be fairly clear in your mind. We sent you some maps and things like that. Um, so uh, we'll be needing that as we, we get a little further into the chapter here. But Paul, is, as he is thanking the Lord for them, he really reflects on their reputation. What, what are some synonyms, interchangeable words for reputation? Every one of you around the table has a reputation. What does that mean? What are we talking about? Image. Your image? Character. Did somebody say character? Good. Okay, your, your image, which certainly does almost always involve your character. Anything else? You might think about like your past. That, your, your past? Your past. Well, no, I think, I think your reputation involves your own personal history, uh, your past. Particularly, uh, for the most part, a reputation that someone has uh, involves uh, examining, watching, knowing about their lives over the past five years, ten years, one year, whatever. Anything else comes to mind here? We were coming up on the elevator and somebody said, <coughs> you have that big van, why don't you have your name on it? And I said, well, I'm not a very good driver. <laughs> so I think it's kind of... <laughs> Kind of what you're going over there. I mean, you know, I mean, sometimes we're in situations where we don't profess we're Christians because maybe we're not really portraying the image of being a Christian as well as what what we're supposed okay, to. Okay, that's that's you're you're getting at what I uh, what I want to talk a little bit about, Matt, and what I think Paul is talking about here. Um, a person can certainly have a positive reputation and a very negative reputation. Um, I don't think we have to cite too many negatives. I mean, about 97,000 names are coming to your mind, you know, whether it's public media people, uh, even tragically many uh, athletes, sports people. I mean, it's hard to bring to mind somebody that, you know, I think nothing but positive when that person's name comes to my mind. Who might be some people that would come to your mind that would be like that? Billy Graham. Billy Graham. I mean, even people who don't give a hoot about Christianity. Billy Graham's image, his reputation is pretty positive. It's hard to get negative things coming up in discussion with Billy Graham's subject. One time we talked about Tim Tebow. Tim Tebow? And I know you did like that. Football. Yeah. 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 Uh, I mean, Tom Osborne. Yeah. I, I had him, when I was president, I had him speak at commencement one year. And, I mean, you know, he, he isn't a great order. 
I'm sure you. I mean, he really isn't. He's not a great orator, and he's in a, he's articulate, but you know, in his very mellow voice. I mean, he just had profound things to say to the students. But you know, it's not it's not no necessarily what he says. It's everything you know about him as you hear him say what he says. You know, he lives what he's just said. I mean, he isn't just saying it for a nice speech and get some accolades. He lives that. So every one of you in this room has, an, uh, has a reputation. And I think for, and you, you hear me pray that, I, I almost always pray that in my Bible classes and so on, at the end when we're ready to leave, Lord, help us to represent you well. I mean, you've heard me pray that, haven't you? That Part of it is this, because <laughs> the moment someone knows we're Christian, they have a preconceived image of what that means, and that's going to be reflected in everything about their past. They may have had some very good experience. They may themselves be Christians or whatever. Paul is reviewing here the reputation that the Thessalonian church had. And if you've read it, uh, and, and we didn't really get into it quite last week, but their reputation was absolutely incredible. This little tiny church, and remember it's probably a collection of a few house churches because that's how uh, they organized themselves in those early years. But anyway, collection of these little house churches at Thessalonica along one of the major Roman road systems, east-west route, where hundreds, probably thousands, maybe tens of thousands of people from all over the Roman Empire would come. And people going north to south, down to Corinth, perhaps Athens, they heard of this church. And the reputation they had was absolutely astonishing. And I've often, I mean, my wife and I have talked about that a lot as we were raising our kids and all of that thing. We, you, you, want, you want to have that kind of reputation because your name is the name your kids have. And if you have a really bad negative reputation, that could carry over into your kids. I mean, it's just the expectation, the perception um, that people will have. Well, he's an Ekman. And that can either be somewhat positive or that could be just, for the poor kid, horrifically negative, you know. Um, when I, uh, right before Christmas, I read a book uh, on the Hatfield-McCoy dispute. You, you, you've ever heard of the Hatfield-McCoy's? You know, it's called The Feud. It's a great book. But it was the origin of how the Hatfield and McCoy's, one of them lived in Kentucky and one of them lived in West Virginia. They lived along the river that was the border between the two. And I'm t- you talk about preconceived notions immediately. Nancy named Hatfield. A whole bunch of stereotypes come up and the reputation if you're a McCoy, is horrible. There is no good living Hatfield. And this is the opposite on the other side. The reputation that the Thessalonian church had was the kind of reputation that you and I want to have. When people hear Thessalonica, they thought of this church. So when they hear your name, they should think of Jesus. This person represents Jesus well. So let's look at what he says. If you're following your notes, it's on page three. We're going to be looking at the reasons for the thanksgiving. We already talked last week about the introduction and how he is thanking the Lord 
continually mentioning them in his prayers, and we talked about all that. And we, we noted that in verse 3, those key words are their faith, their love, and their hope, which we talked about last week and developed. And then in verse uh, 4 and 5, he sort of summarizes the relationship that they had uh, in the context of when he and uh, Silas went into the Thessalonian area and presented the gospel to them. All right. Okay? You with me? We're, that's kind of where we are. Now we start verse 6, which is the first reason for, for them being thankful to the Lord for the Thessalonians. Verse 6 you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And let me just continue, verse 7. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Verse 8. The Lord's message rang out from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith and God has become known everywhere. So let's take a look at these reasons. Reason number one for their thanksgiving to the Lord is <clears throat> you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. Now there are probably two key words there. The word imitator and the word joy. Literally, the word imitator there is mimic. You know, you've heard that English word, mimic. So, um, what were they mimicking? What were they imitating? Paul. Say it again, please. Specifically what about Paul? Specifically, what dimension of their walk with the Lord? Say it again. That comes later. That's the next verse. But again, I mean, look. Don't look at me. Look at the verse. <laughs> Imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with joy, given by the Holy Spirit. So, in what dimension? of the Christian life, were they imitating Paul and Jesus? Seems to me he found joy whatever his circumstance was. Joy in the midst of suffering. Regardless of the circumstances, you have the attitude of joy. Now that takes you back to Philippians 4, which we studied about several months ago, in, in, in chapter 4, verse, uh, verse 4. Consider, well, anyway, I won't go into all that. Now, you, you look like you're dumbfounded. Are you with me? Did you there, say joy in the midst of hardships? Or yes, suffering. Severe suffering. Now that is a consistent theme throughout the scriptures, isn't it? James chapter 1, verse 2. Count it all joy when you encounter various trials. Who wants to do that? Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. Who wants to do that? Someone that is serious about their walk with Christ. And so he, it's, it's just, it's just a, a kind of a remarkable way he puts it. You imitated us. You imitated the Lord by manifesting joy in the midst of suffering. 
Would someone like to? What a terrible way to ask the question. Nobody will respond if I do it that way. We have talked about this when we were in Philippians. What does that mean? What does that look like? Joy in the midst of suffering. It's one of the things about the Thessalonian church that we will learn as we go through these two epistles is this was a place where these believers were really persecuted for their faith. And this was a major Roman city. Remember, I talked about that last week. It was on a major Roman road. And because of who they were and what they were saying, what they said, they were really persecuted. So he means some very specific things here. But let's generalize it for just our lives. What does joy in the midst of suffering, what does that look like? What does that mean? It means having an eternal perspective. Wonderful. Wonderful. What does that mean? just means that uh, whatever the negative circumstance is, is temporary. Um, that ultimately God can bring good from whatever it is. Excellent. So I mean, that's, 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 that's really very good. If you, you go to sleep, you just go right to sleep. You, you pray, and you can fall asleep. In the morning, you don't need an alarm to get up. You just get up <laughs> ready to, to okay. take on the day. You know, That's Matt's afraid. life, by the way. That, he's just describing his life. But well, in, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm being facetious. But it is. It is, and that that can be a very um, a very significant manifestation of joy in the midst of suffering. You can sleep well, not necessarily every single night, but you really can rest because you're resting in the Lord. And you need it if you're going to go through tribulations. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else that comes to mind? Certainly would fit here. Would fit here, absolutely. So it's uh, it's like it is as we when we were in Philippians we talked. It is one of the fruit of the spirit that the the Holy Spirit supernaturally produces, but it's a distinguishing aspect of our reputation. And these people at Thessalonica, because we will see as we get into the book a little bit. More this, they were really persecuted for for what they stood for, what they believed. Some of it we know a little bit of the nature of it, but obviously most of it we don't. And it just stood out. You've mimicked me, us, Paul, Silas, and the Lord, because the Lord Jesus certainly uh, suffered greatly, and yet He manifested that joy. So that was something they were known for. That was part of their reputation. And. Um, I can think of, in, in my own mind, in my mind's eye, I can, I can see several people that I would choose as good role models for that. One was my grandmother on my mother's side. I mean, my grandmother, she had a pretty hard life. She lost her first child to pneumonia, which today, you know, that's pretty rare to, to have a child die from that. Uh, her husband, my grandfather, contracted a very rare kidney disease that ultimately took his life. But he lived for about 11 years with that. They had to refinance their house twice because that was before a lot of the medical, Medicare and benefits that come. I mean, they, they, they had some medical help, but most of it, they had to pay for it all themselves. Um, then at near the end of her, uh, her mid-40s, she had a son, which was really unexpected. And then because of all that was happening in my grandfather's sickness, that son rebelled for a period of time. 
But I never, and I mean this sincerely, I never remember seeing my grandmother showing that immense burden. She always had an attitude of joy. She loved to sing the hymns. And they had these old, really old, um, it would be a player piano that was converted. The thing weighed a ton. But she used to just sit and play that piano and just sing. And I mean, she just manifested that. She is a role model to me of what he is talking about here, that the Thessalonians, you mimicked this. That's a great aspect of her reputation. And then the second uh, reason is in that next verse, verse 7. Now I'm reading, I, I like how the NIV does this. That's what I'm reading from. And so verse 7, so you became a model to all the believers. And don't miss the show. That's a conclusion. That's an inferential word. Because of your reputation of joy in the midst of suffering, you became a model to the other believers. And he's very specific because that's where they, that's where they lived, in Macedonia. And um, I think you know, but it, well, if we take the maps that I gave you, Macedonia, Thessalonica is in Macedonia. Achaia is the s- southern part. That's now Athens. Corinth was the Roman capital of Achaia. Okay, I'm just pointing out. So basically the whole Macedonian Greek world, in in terms of of, uh, faith, the the Thessalonians were known for this. And you, you say, whoa, that is really significant. Their joy in the midst of suffering, that they were mimicking Jesus and Paul and Silas, their joy in the midst of suffering, it it had an enormous effect. So the believers look to you as a model. What a reputation. I'm in verse 7. Verse 7 of 1 of Thessalonians 1. Okay. Did, did, did I lose you, Woody? Yeah, for a minute. I think you've got it. Okay. <clears throat> I was going to say, I remember about... Probably 30 years ago, I sat under, I was vacationing with my older brother in another town, sat under this pastor. He was talking about Paul. Boy, I never liked to be with Paul. He, he was rough on everybody. You know, his, he, he gave a different. Uh, oh, my goodness, I really? I never forgot that. Oh, my. my. My church's Bible study, we have people that have a big problem with Paul. Oh, goodness. And, and one of the pejoratives that's used. It's used in politics in America today, too, but the word Paulite. Mm. They're really not followers of Christ. You can't call them Christians. They're really Paulites. Mm. That is a late 19th century German theological liberal view. And I mean, I'm just putting it in stark perspective. That fits with my experience. It really, does, it really is. No, for, for 1,900 years, nobody made that distinction. But a group of German theological liberals in the late 19th century because of a lot of things, this started to separate two. There's Christ's Christianity and there's Paul's Christianity. And they're different. And, you know, I honestly, I know why these crazy folks were saying that, but that's a to- that betrays a total misunderstanding of the New Testament. I mean, it really does. It's a total misunderstanding of the New Testament. But, and, you know, Tom, you're, you're right. There are times where Paul is very firm like when he confronts Peter. 
But, I mean, we're at almost every letter he has saying, we saw, you saw what he was saying to the Philippians. Every letter he's like, he's just affirming and encouraging. And then he'll say something, but you've got to, you've got to correct this. This is wrong, but that's, that's the role of a servant leader. You serve, you affirm, you edify, but you also correct. Like a parent, you affirm, you encourage, but you correct. And that's, the, that's your role. And, and so, Paul, I just, I know exactly what you guys are saying. And that just, it's like sandpaper along the side of my mental image of, <laughs> it's just, it's, that's so unbiblical. And I don't mean to criticize these people, but it's, it's so unbiblical. It's a fragmented view of, of the scriptures instead of a holistic view of the scriptures. And if the Holy Spirit inspired all of it, you would expect it to be a unified message. And, and I, think, I think it is. But, uh, well, okay. Look at the next verse then, because it builds. But it's a third reason for why they give thanks, and it's a little more extensive. Verse 8, the Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, again, that geographical area, but your faith in God has become known everywhere. Now, obviously, that's maybe a little bit of hyperbole because I, I don't think the Native Americans had heard of them yet, but they will eventually. But at this time, I think the assumption we are to make is that the reputation of the Thessalonians was known throughout the Roman world. And it is, and so that means not only in, you know, just right in Greece, but down in Antioch they're hearing of them. In Alexandria, which is right on the delta in Egypt, there's a major, major church there, they're hearing of them. Maybe even some of the very new believers over in Spain. But the point is, they are developing a reputation as a people not only of joy in the midst of suffering, that others are modeling but for their faith. And, excuse me, the kinds of things we talked about when we tried to think about joy in the midst of suffering really do come from our faith and trust in the Lord. So, you know, when, when, when we would itemize this out, and now you think for yourself, because the takeaway from our study this, this afternoon is I want you to leave thinking, what's my reputation? And you and I, and this is one of the things that is also consistent through the New Testament, you and I now represent Jesus. We come to know Christ, and we begin our walk with him. We now take, because Christian means, I mean the actual origin of the word Christian means, little Christ. We represent Christ. And so that becomes... And I mean, I, I'm really challenged by that because there have been, I'll be very transparent, there are times when I have not represented Christ very well. And so I'm sending, I'm sending a message to people that is not the right message to send. Because what you, what, you know, I think part of the goal, and this is why it's such, it's such an astonishing piece of scripture here. These people, these people, because of how they were living their lives, their reputation was a remarkable reputation because they really represented Jesus well. And it has an effect on other people. 
in a very positive way. Jim, so. we read about these people, and, and they're known as, as they were known. We sit around this table, and uh, we, or at least I do, I don't know if anybody else in this room does, but I tend to hold these people at a higher level than what I hold myself at. Not because I should, but because it's in this book and they become people that perhaps you, I, I personally think, can I live up to that? And so can you address that? Because a lot of I mean, as, as we go through Scripture, you know, we point to certain people as outstanding um, leaders of the faith. And here we sit in, in 2015 in this room. Can we ever hope to achieve that in yes. the same sense? Yes. And we, how... Uh, well, now, don't, don't forget one thing. To, to really bring this down to our level, and I certainly include myself in this, we don't know one name of the people that he's talking about here. We don't know one name of these people. You can't hold, and what I mean by this, you can't hold the, well, these are all Paul. No, 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 no. We don't know their names. But the reputation of this little church or you know, group of home churches, they're common, ordinary folk, just like us. But they're manifesting these qualities. And in a very real sense, the key is verse 9. Because he summarizes, here's what you used to be, here's what you are, and people notice the change. And these people would have had the same morals as the Corinthians? I mean, Absolutely. I mean, they're, they're, they're Greco-Roman people. So the same kind of moral, uh, political, economic, social views and practices. It's kind of like a cesspool. But that's what he says. Here's what you used to be, because he says... you. They tell how you turn from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. What he's saying is people knew what you used to be like. Now they see what you are. And the only explanation for that change is Jesus. That's part of Joy in the midst of suffering, they become a model for other believers, and their faith is known throughout the, the Mediterranean world because people know what they used to be like and now what they're like. And Fred, that isn't perfection. They don't see perfection, but they see a transformation that's inexplicable except for Jesus. Because for someone to go from, you know, and Matt's question relates to this, but someone to go from Living in the cesspool, representing the cesspool, which involved idolatry and all the pagan practice that went with it, now to worshiping and living for and representing the living true God, that is a phenomenal change. How do you explain that? Jesus. And that's a reputation. You know, one of the things that really, really, really made me frustrated about a movie that Hollywood just put out was how they depicted the book Unforgiven. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. That book, if you haven't read the book Unforgiven, you really should read it. It's an incredible story of this man who was a pilot during World War II, was shot down. He spent years in a Japanese prison, horribly abused. He had such bitterness in his heart, seeking revenge. He hated the Japanese. He hated the man who was at the Japanese camp. 
He has become a virtual alcoholic, changed smoking cigarettes into all kinds of sexual pornography and everything. In 1964, he goes to Billy Graham Crusade, and he finds Christ. Amen. And he is absolutely changed. And he wants to find, he wants to find that Japanese leader of that camp and share Christ with him and forgive him. But it doesn't show that in the movie. It's not even about that at all. In, in the movie, you would never know yes, right. that he came to know Jesus. And the reason he did what he did was because he found Christ. When Angelina Jolie, I said to Peggy, when I found out she was going to produce, I said, honey, I guarantee you she is not going to focus on his transformation. And she didn't. It's a great story. It's a great movie. It's a great, I mean, it's a great heroic story. But it doesn't mention the most important thing that happened to this man. He found Jesus Christ and it totally transformed him. And the bondage that he was in, the revenge and the bitterness and the alcohol and all that, I mean, this guy was really, really changed. And it's just one of those stories that the reputation he had was of transformation. And Angelina Jolie doesn't depict why he was changed. Not that we should expect Hollywood to capture the story, but I mean, it's just so tragic. It's, it's like telling a half-truth. You're not explaining why the change occurred. These people, their reputation was, they really have changed. How do you explain it? Billy Graham's son uh, took up where Jolene left off and uh, finished off more in keeping with Hildebrand's book, uh, Unbroken. And, uh, and he had a tremendous testimony. Mm. Tremendous testimony. Well, and I mean, that's kind it, of why the United States is kind of falling in the world perception is similar to that because the news is predicted, you know, saying the United States is wrong about just about everything, and then sometimes the political parties are fighting into amongst themselves, and so we're portraying. When I when I go over to Europe and stuff, everybody loves America, mm -hmm. but you wouldn't know if I watch our news. They think everybody hates us. Yeah. But you go over there, and pretty much, besides the French, everybody's really nice to you. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and you can, I mean, I went to Morocco, and they're all watching. And that was I went to Morocco when they had the election and with the with the shads or whatever before, and, and that and, and they were just they couldn't believe that we couldn't figure out how to get an election done because they're in Morocco, you know, which was and they were real proud of the fact that they were the first country to recognize America as independent. Um, but, but they're all watching that, and, and now you know. Now you're getting, you know, that was probably 14 years ago or whatever. But now you're getting the people in Morocco turning Muslim and, and extreme more than they, you know, because we just we don't we're not producing the book. We're, I mean, whoever's producing it's like Angelo Jolie. They're not producing. That, that's not who should be producing it. Well. Yes. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know what else to say. But you're, you're, you're so right. I mean, it's just, is, you know. You know, Paul was well. talking to the Thessalonians, and, and they got the same, uh, you know, the people in Corinth were still trying to do the right thing, yeah. you know. And, but if you don't get it exactly right, even if you're just a little off, you're not going to have the reputation that the Thessalonians have. Yeah, that's, it's really, it's the kind of reputation that, the specifics are different, but you and I want the kind of reputation. Would you notice one thing uh, to move on? 
these bunny trails keep, which is good, but they keep getting us off the track. In the middle of verse 8 and then into verse 9, let me read that again. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it. One paraphrase, we don't need to add anything to it because they themselves report what happened when we visited you. So what is he saying to us there? This is what we hear about you. This is what we are hearing about you. This isn't what we are saying. This is what we are hearing. This is what people are reporting. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve. These are really important words. The living. And in my Bible, I circled living and I circled idols and I put a line between them. Because an idol is stone or wood. God is living and true God. And then because of their faith in the living and true God, their entire focus changed. And verse 10 summarizes their focus. Waiting for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. What four-letter word would you put? Waiting for his son from heaven. Starts with an H and ends in an E. Has an O in it. Hope. <laughs> My hints are. You can't figure them out. <laughs> but hope. I want to before we get to the last clause of verse ten. <clears throat> let's think about that for a minute. Their reputation was not only of their faith, turning from idols to a living God, but part of their reputation is, well, wait. They're known as people who are waiting for his son from heaven. What would that look like? And I don't mean what the the meaning of waiting for his son. That's not what I mean. That's hope. Your focus is on, you know, the next part of God's program is the return of his son. There's nothing else that needs to be done. What does that, practically speaking, what does that mean? What does that look like? What, what's he saying here? Do you understand my question? I mean, if this is the reputation these people had, what are they seeing? What are these other people reporting to Paul? What are they seeing? What are they hearing? I mean, what are they observing? You're not getting my question, are you? What's the, what's the practical dimension of this? I mean, I don't think they're standing on the street corners of Thessalonica preaching eschatology. I don't think that's what they're doing. Eschatology is the theology of last things. I don't think that's what they're doing. So what are they reporting to Paul? I mean, what are they seeing? What, what are they hearing? Joy. What? Joy has to do with it. A word that's been bouncing around in my mind. I thought it was a little late to borrow for you. Symptoms <laughs> for reputation. But several years ago, I worked for a major firm management in the town and one of the key words that managers used to talk about among themselves was very important was credibility mm. and I, as we're reading this I'm thinking well, what would you need credibility for perhaps the great commission mm-hmm. and that's what to me this relates to I mean I can see a couple of things you know peace and joy mm-hmm. exude transformation exudes, mm-hmm. Absolutely. Exudes from this church. Oh, why do we even think about that? I'm thinking it's 
I like the word credibility, and that does fit with this. And credibility and authentic or authenticity go to well, go, go well together. You know, the, a couple of years ago, a man wrote a book called Authentic Christianity, and what he was just getting at is, let's just let's live what we say, let's walk what we talk, because those two are not disconnected; they're very connected. And so if, if there's hope and there is that eternal dimension to things that you mentioned a little bit ago, it's going to affect kind of how we live our lives. Let, let, me, let me give you a real specific illustration because it's, it's one that I just observed a couple of months ago. When you go to Israel, and, you, and I mean on a tour, I don't mean to do business there, but you go on a tour, one of the things you really observe is the difference between the Greco-Roman cities of the Mediterranean, Eastern Mediterranean world, and the Jewish cities, and very early Christian villages. It's really because the, the the Greco-Roman world. We always take people to. Um, it's called Beit Shan, but it's it was a major, major city, and it was a, it became a great Greco-Roman cities, bathhouses and theaters and this huge marketplace and luxury everywhere. What does that tell you? The Greco-Roman world lived for the moment. But you go to a Jewish city, and they're very plain. I mean, they're, you know, they're nice, but they're very plain. The, the most important building in the, in the Jewish city, I'm thinking like Chorazin or Capernaum or Bethsaida, is the synagogue. But everything else is pretty plain. The Jewish, and, and later Christians would inhabit, they lived for eternity. Whereas the Greco-Roman people lived for the moment. There's a difference in how you live your life. And I'm using that as a tangible illustration that it really smacks you along the side of the face when you're touring. There's a real difference. And your worldview affects how you live. I had a friend of mine who used to, he was an older, he was more of a mentor. He said, travel light. You're only passing through. Now, I don't know what that means to you. I know what it means to me and my wife and, and the choices we've made because that's what we believe. But you have to work that through yourself. And I'm not only talking about material things. That's a little tiny part of it. It's what is really important to you? What is really important to you in life? If what's driving you in life is material things, and wealth, and the good life, not that there's any, there's nothing evil but those things. They're all good gifts from God. It's how you manage them, but it's what your focus is. I used to have a very, he was like in his 80s, but he was back in Pennsylvania. He's been with the Lord a long time, but he was a, uh, I knew him in, in my church where uh, I was originally from, and they ordained me many, many years ago. Um, he was the kind of guy you would go up to him because he has men, and that's to some extent even true for women. The very first question we ask is, what do you do? Right? What do you do? That's what we want to know. And this was always his answer. You know, come up, what do you do? Oh, I'm a Christian. Uh, no, no, no. What do you do? I'm a Christian. And then, you know, about the third or fourth time after what do you do, I'm a Christian, he says, oh, you mean how do I pay expenses? Isn't that a great way to answer? You have to think about that. How do I pay expenses? He was an engineer. But his, his, my life, I'm a Christian. 
Remember, Christian, I represent Christ. I'm a little Christian, a little Christ. Oh, uh, pay expenses? Oh, yeah, I'm an engineer. <laughs> I just said, uh, that is a great way. I mean, some people can do that, some people can't. Maybe today that would not necessarily be the right way to answer people at a Rotary Club meeting. But it's just, it's the kind of thing, that guy really, that guy had it right. His whole focus was on representing Christ in everything he did. He said, I'm a Christian. What do you do? I'm a Christian. <laughs> Does that work in a networking meeting? I, I don't know. It may not. It may not. And that's, yeah, that's not a rigid rule, but it's just an illustration in some way. And I honestly, I don't exactly know what the content of the report was. But that report was, they were known as people who waited for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That's that's a pretty neat thing to be known as people who have that focus of hope in the future. Then Paul adds something theological to this. Who raised him from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Now that is an unusual way to put it. In other parts of the Bible, that is called the Day of the Lord. <clears throat> Who rescues us from the coming wrath. Will Christians experience the wrath of God. No. Thank you for being decisive. Why, why is nobody answering this question? <laughs> the answer is no. Why not? Woody? I, I have a question. Oh, you don't want to answer it. You want to ask one. That's all right. We'll, we'll get back to the question. Please ask your question. It is a letter. Well, that was at the very beginning. That was part of the introduction. How long were Paul and Silas there when they planted the church? We read about that last week in Acts. I didn't write it down. Okay. <laughs> about, about three months, three and a half months. <laughs> okay. Yeah, another question. Was, I didn't expect that, Woody, but... Um, I don't even remember what was my question. Oh, why, why will Christians not experience the wrath of God? Because They're redeemed through Jesus Christ, yeah. and we will not go through it because when we accepted Christ, he has delivered us from the wrath that God intends for those who do not receive Christ as their Savior. Covenant. Only once. Okay, yeah, it's in that once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus. And Isaiah 53, among many other places, tell us, tells us that the Father poured out his wrath on the Son, on the cross. That's what Calvary is all about. And that, I mean, just you have to really think about that, but that's the whole idea of the atonement of Jesus on the cross, his sacrifice on the cross. He... He became the object of God's wrath. God punished him. 
know that he does not need to punish us. Remember, we, we talked about it this way. And he completes all the work and says, this is the gift. But it's on the table. You've got to pick up the gift. And you pick up the gift by putting your faith in Christ, believing it. He did that for me. And you pick up the gift by faith. You're now a child of God. And the Bible, this is one of the themes that's in the scriptures. It's in the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, it's kind of wrapped around that phrase. But we're going to see this in the Thessalonian letters. That's coming up. That's why I put it here. Paul is going to use that phrase, the day of the Lord. Because the day of the Lord is an end time phrase. And you'll see this coming up. Somebody in the Thessalonian church was teaching the day of the Lord's begun. And Paul says, no, 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 it hasn't. <laughs> Three things have to happen before the day of the Lord starts. So it isn't only talking about the individual personal believer who will not experience the, the wrath of God, but God is going to deliver his church before the wrath of God's poured out. And that becomes something that you'll see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. In two chapters, we're going to see him talk about that. Where he's going to say, Jesus is going to come back and in the air with the shout, with the voice of the archangel and the last trumpet, the dead in Christ shall rise first, and we who are alive will be caught up to be with him forever. That's the event we call the rapture. And that's, the debate is over when does it occur, but that is going to occur as a given. And he will deliver us from the wrath to come. Because then that's what starts, kicks off what becomes known, and Jesus calls it this, the tribulation. He's going to deliver us from that. And so the expectation of the Thessalonian believers was we're living for eternity and our focus is on the blessed hope of Jesus. He's coming back for us and will deliver us out from among the wrath that's going to come on planet Earth. Versus, versus what Solomon was going early on. That's right. In... Uh, Solomon started. Like it was a yeah, Solomon started well, finished miserably. <laughs> so, uh, in your in your journey with, with Christ and through, um, when what point did you kind of realize that that Christ took the wrath of God? I mean, was that really when you started? You asking me personally that question? Personally, like, because the Thessalonians must kind of realize that now, and that kind of kicked them, you know, in the butt, I guess. That, that they would, you know, once you realize that God took his wrath out on Christ, because we don't, they don't preach that at church. I mean, we're the, I, mean well, I do, if you could. Well, <laughs> I mean, they don't hear that because, 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 I mean, that's, 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 that's. God took his wrath out on Christ. I mean, I we just, we, you know. Well, that, that is the language, that is the language in the scriptures. In Isaiah, that is the language that's used. And here it is. You're going to see this, this word wrath will come up again in the Thessalonian letters. And that, I mean, I, Matt, in my own life, I mean, it was 1972. That's when it occurred. But, uh, but I mean, was it like a light bulb? Or was it just, it just kind of evolved in you? Kind of, or did you read? Well, I mean, it, it, it depends. If you're asking me uh, theologically, uh, the understanding of right. all of that, that, right. that comes a little bit later. But the... The, the, the clarity of what Jesus did for me on the cross and taking my punishment, that's something I clearly understood in 1972. When I, that's the date I use for my... Um, recently, there were 21 uh, men that mm. had their heads removed. Mm. And one of, one of them reportedly mm -hmm. said, 
help me, Jesus. Mm -hmm. And the world looking on with that mm -hmm. and having the same person lose his head mm -hmm. may have, it may be an assumed, I think, that Jesus didn't help him, but Jesus may have very well helped him. Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. the world looks at the material aspect, it seems. Well, I, that momentary, I, he lost his life in a gruesome way. But the gospel is, he really didn't lose his life. Eternal. He gained. I mean, he's to, to, to dies to gain, that we studied in Philippians. So the world yeah. may not understand mm -hmm. his faith or the outcome mm -hmm. of his faith. But what... Are, it, and I, I know I, I've heard that a couple of times from different people, and I did not see the video of it, but uh, that that apparently is indeed what happened. One of those men, before he was beheaded, was, was saying quite loudly, help me, Jesus, help me. What a testimony. I mean, that's a testimony. You have no idea how the Lord will use that. But he is saying something that is a bedrock truth. To be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord, present with the Lord. And so, I mean, that's a, it's a tremendous testimony. And martyrdom for the faith is every generation we see it. There's a, there's a growing element of it right now because of what's happening in the Middle East. But I, that was a, a very encouraging, it was horrible, that was horrible. But that was an encouraging thing that even in the midst of such horror is the gospel message. Amen. I mean, that's just absolutely horrible. But. Now, um, we're, we're nearing the end here of, of our time, and I want to introduce the next chapter. But the takeaway from today is reputation. What's your reputation? And all of us are in process. We're not talking about perfection here. We're not talking about people seeing Paul or Jesus in perfection, but we are reflecting him. And what, what happens is people, if you... You know, I think of Woody, because Woody has talked about his testimony and his life. People that know Woody see the Woody of 20 years ago is very different than the Woody of today. How do you explain that? The major explanation is Jesus. People that know me from back in Pennsylvania in the 1960s, and the, I mean, only as an illustration, the, I had one guy email me, are you the Jim Ekman I knew at Salisbury High School? Because somehow he Googled it and somehow came up. He said, you're not the same guy, are you? I said, yes, I am. That's, well, things have not. really changed in my life. Yeah. But I mean, that kind of thing. And that's, in some way, that's kind of what's going on at Thessalonian Church. People knew what these folks were like. Idolaters. You know, in, uh, participating in the immoral orgies in the temples. Now they're serving the living true God and have this tiptoe expectation of the return of Jesus. That's a change, isn't it? That is a big change in life. And that, the kind of reputation that we have is the reputation of the changed life. Not perfection, but the reputation of the changed life. I'm not what I want to be, but I thank God I'm not what I used to be. Amen. Amen. That's the changed life. We're not perfect, but we are very much a work in progress, and that work is being done by the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the reputation we want to have. I'm sure you have encountered not many, 
There's some people that have changed. Oh, oh, all the time. That's one of the joys of what I do. Oh, my that's goodness. Great, that's, oh. That's a great experience. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I've known Matt a little bit, not as long as I've known some of you, but I've known Matt because he's come to my classes for a couple of years now. And Matt is a guy, the Lord is really transforming him. Amen. Yes. I mean, he really is. And it's it's true. I mean, some of the rest of you I know I don't know as well as as, as, as some of the rest of them. But I'm, as I as I get to know you, I mean, I see the Lord is at work in your life. That's what we're talking about. The most significant evidence that the Lord is the changed life. That's the reputation we want. That's what it's all about. It really is. Now tomorrow, or uh, I mean, uh, next uh, Wednesday. Uh, there's some really neat stuff in chapter 2 as Paul begins to talk about the ministry he had among them and how his relationship was to them. And here again is this what Tom was saying and, and Bob was saying. Paul is going to say, I was like a nursing mother to you. I was like a father to you. That's not the harsh, mean-spirited Paul. This is a servant. And I want to learn some things that we can apply to our life through that. Because all of us, to one degree or another, are leaders. What kind of a leader was Paul? What does a servant leader in Paul's case look like? And that's what we're going to start to explore next Tuesday. I mean, uh, next Wednesday or whatever day we meet. Wednesday, isn't it? Is that starting on letter B here? On yeah, on le- uh, chapter 2, uh, chapter two yes. large letter B. Yep, that's what we're going to start next week. One more time, your takeaway from class today is your reputation. You are manifesting the changed life, and all the credit goes to Christ. Father, we thank you for uh, the word of God. It is a living word. It pulsates with truth because it represents uh, your revelation to us. And as we study and uh, try to apply this to our lives, we, we want indeed what we just were talking about. We want our lives to change. We are all in process. And as we somewhat uh, said, uh, uh, somewhat humorously, we're, we're not what we want to be, but thank you, dear Lord, we're not what we used to be. In a way, that is probably something we all could say. We're not talking about a reputation of perfection, but we're talking about a reputation that we do represent you. And the changed life, which gives all credit and glory to you, is is an aspect of that. If we truly are following you, it it will develop a reputation. Something is going on in that person's life. And the only explanation for that is the Lord Jesus. That apparently is how the Thessalonian reputation was developing. The incredible change that occurred in these people's lives from idolaters to those who worshiped the living and true God and had that eternally focused hope, the return of Christ for them. And we just want to, in some way, in our own unique uh, individual lives and all the aspects of it and characteristics of it, we want to represent you. We want a reputation that honors you. We ask that you'll help us to do that. We trust you. We love you. We want to walk with you. And we ask your blessing on what we do to your glory. Give us a good rest of this day, this week, and we look forward to regathering again next Wednesday. Help us to represent you well in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. See you next week.